From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know, this show is going to be kind of a good old-fashioned Lexicon Valley as hosted by me. I want to just work with one sentence. It's something that came to me recently. I was watching through the fourth season of The Crown, getting to it kind of late, but frankly, I've spent the pandemic watching so much garbage, like the 4,000 episodes of The Jeffersons, that I realized I hadn't gotten to The Crown. It's kind of weird seeing somebody playing Lady Di, although that actress is amazingly good. But there was this one sentence, and I just thought, as it went by, wow, there's so much history in that one mundane, shaggy, stupid little sentence. It's the episode with this troubled gentleman, Fagin, who breaks into Buckingham Palace and has a conversation with the Queen. So hard to believe that actually happened. But at one point in his backstory, so to speak, he's having trouble with some official, and the official says, you're going to have to take that up with counsel. You're going to have to take that up with counsel. Instead of listening to me do a bad estuary British accent, listen to the clip from The Crown. The episode is Fagin. I want my kids to spend time with me. All right. But they've seen the flat and said it needs improving. There's water damage. Want to fix it? You're not the primary tenant. My wife's the primary tenant, but she's left. I just explained. You'd have to be the primary tenant at that address before we could even consider paying for the damages. Have you tried talking to the council? No, they told me speak to you. Look, if this doesn't get sorted, I don't get to see my kids. You're going to have to take that up with the council. So you hear that, Mike? Do me a favor. Play that again. It's just this one little sentence. You're going to have to take that up with the council. There's a story in practically every word. It's why linguists just watch language going by, and from the outside, it looks like we're not judgmental. But really, what we see all of this as is a kind of spectator sport. Every word in that sentence is a story. So let's just start. You know, you're going to have to take that up with counsel. You're you, you. So just the word you. It's this guy addressing Fagin, who is one person, and he's using it in the singular. But that's not the way it was supposed to be. And there was a time when people had trouble with this because you starts out as the plural you. It starts out that it's thou in the singular. Thou is, say, your friend standing in front of you. So thou are going to have to take that up with counsel. Thou art going to have to take that up with counsel. You is plural. Now, at a certain point, they started using the plural word in the singular, First, as a mark of a kind of distancing respect, the idea being that you refer to somebody as two people in order to avoid being so direct as to address them as one. And of course, we see that throughout Europe. And so vous applied to one person in French, for example, or there's my favorite language, Russian, where you can address one person as vous and so on. But in English, the strange thing is that then the singular word just disappears, at least in the standard variety. And so thou ends up going, and you have you and you as singular and plural. That's an odd thing. It happens in some other languages. Hindi comes to mind. But it's not the usual, and nobody really knows exactly why that was the story in English. Now, thou does not disappear entirely. 
it is still used actually in many colloquial varieties and was used even more in regional, for example, varieties before. So Lady Chatterley's Lover, you can learn a lot about this from the male hunk in that he's got his regional dialect. And at one point, he's trying to get her to come over for what we might call a booty call. And he says, the moon come to the cottage one time. The moon and the, the moon is thou must. Thou must come to the cottage one time. That's what he says to her. But that's way out there. That's uneducated him. In the standard, thou gradually just vanishes. And there's a little more about you in that it's the wrong case. You starts out as the accusative form. The nominative form was ye. So hear ye, hear ye. That means y'all hear, y'all hear. You was something like, you know, I would like to kick you all, kick you. And so that means that when we say you are going to have to take that up with counsel, it's almost like saying me is going to have to take that up with counsel as if me ate everything up. Very interesting thing how pronouns are always kind of oozing all around. They're like chinchillas in a box. I once knew somebody who had chinchillas in a box, and the only interesting thing they did is that they never stopped moving. They are always ooching all around each other. Pronouns are like chinchillas in a box. So you are, when it really should be ye are, And, you know, this reminds me of something. It's a genuine question that I've had about a rather obscure Broadway show tune. This is from Pajama Game, and I'm playing it not because I like the song that much, but because what it's called is Her Is. Like, Her Is, the kind of gal what drives a fella bats. Now, this is supposed to be working class white Midwesterners in the 1950s. And I've always wondered, and if anybody knows, please tell me, did anybody in American English ever actually say colloquially, her is? That's the kind of girl I'd like to marry, her is. Did anybody ever say that, or is that just in this song? To give you a sense, here's the song. This is Stanley Prager singing in 1953 for, for the pajama game. Ha, 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 her is. A kind of doll what drives a fella bats Isn't her? Her is Her has A kind of shape what really is the cat's Hasn't her? Her has My wife, she ain't understanding She ain't like her is This here ain't no line I'm handing Or I should drop dead right where I'm standing Her is A snappy dresser what is dressed to kill Isn't her? Her is Her is The only doll from which I get a thrill Isn't her? Her is Her is Running away But her sure can bet Him is Gonna get her yet gonna get her yet another thing on this so ye old tobacco shop ye is not the there was no time when people said ye instead of the that quote-unquote why is an orthographical convention for what was meant as the so it's the old tobacco shop nobody was ever talking about you old tobacco shop or something like that as you can see one could go on and on and on about you there's a book being written right now not by me about they everybody wants to talk about they partly because of the grand old singular they tell each student they can bring in their paper whenever they want to and now the the new specific referential they as in my girlfriend is in the hospital 
hospital and they would like to get a haircut there or something like that. So they is interesting, but you could do a book about you. Not me is going to do it, but somebody could do a whole book about this funny thing you. You know, a little more. There used to be a you that you used for only two people rather than three or more. English had a word, yeet. Not the yeet that the kids are using nowadays to mean to throw some piece of shit in the trash can. It was yeet that meant to use. And so you two go over there. You didn't have to say you two. You could just say yeet, go over there. And you know what the accusative was? Ink. And so I wish to kick you two. You could say I wish to kick ink. The possessive was inker. So you two's lamp, inker lamp. That was the interesting sort of thing you used to have in this now boring language. And so, for example, early Middle English, which still had a lot of old English in it. How can you not know who we are? How can you two not know who we two are, is what it meant. And how that went was, and for early Middle English, we're going to use the old English voice because you can tell it was that same dirty, violent world. So, how, who made, who made, how can you not know? That's not know you. How do you not know? And then what we are. What with both. So what we are. Now, the yeet is you two and the wheat is we two. Same thing. There was, you know, I, we is a whole bunch of eyes. And then wheat was we two. So what with both. How can you not know who we are. We had yeet, and now we just have boring old you. Boring English. So, folks, it's time for an announcement. Yeah, you knew it was coming. I have said that I was going to let Lexicon Valley go in June, and I am going to reveal in this episode that actually that's not True. Lexicon Valley is going to continue, but under different auspices. Lexicon Valley very soon will be moving to Substack, and it's going to be part of a new family of podcasts called Booksmart. The Booksmart podcasts include two others hosted by Bob Garfield and Amna Khalid. This will not be behind a paywall. You will still get Lexicon Valley that at least many of you seem to have enjoyed. I'm going to keep the show tunes in. I will be being more topical. I've been doing this version of Lexicon Valley now for five years. I've enjoyed it. I'd like to change it up a little. And so it's going to be more from the headlines than it used to be. Not angry. It's not going to be a show about what gets on my nerves, or at least not very often. But we're going to make it a slightly more topical show. Nevertheless, it will have the same basic flavor that a lot of you enjoy. If you choose to pay for it, though, you will get bonus content. It's kind of like the Slate Plus arrangement, but different. There will be goodies that you get if you decide to pay for it. But this is to say that Lexicon Valley is not ending. There are times when it's not about endings, but new beginnings. And so we'll be moving to Substack, specifically booksmartstudios.org. That's booksmart and then studios run together, booksmartstudios.org. You're going to have to take that up with counsel. Okay, so you are going to have to take that up with counsel. R. Just that word. The to be in English is this train wreck of four different verbs. The one for am and are, then there's one for is, then there's one for be, and then there's one for was and were. Were, as I apparently say, were. How, how do you say it? But it's those four verbs. It was a crunch of all of those to create this 
wonderful verb. It's the one verb in English where you kind of have this feeling of feeling sorry for foreigners for having to learn all the different forms. It's it's the one thing where you get the pleasure of feeling like English is really hard. English is normal in that way. Imagine, I am, you are, he is, we are, you are, they are, that, that's, and then was, be. That's difficult. It's just this crunch. It's like the crunch of a bad cereal in the 80s. It's like it's the early 80s and you're bored and there's no internet and you're watching TV and you're into video games for about 10 minutes and one of them is Donkey Kong and of course they make a Donkey Kong cereal. I used to really love the song for the commercial and I listened to it recently and the song frankly sucked but it did have the word crunch in it and so here is what I thought of as one of the better commercial jingles 40 years ago, Donkey Kong cereal. You'll love the crunch. Now on your breakfast table, Donkey Kong brand cereal. Crunchy bears of corn, cold breakfast. Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong cereal. Sweet, crunchy corn taste will drive you ape. You love the crunch. Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong cereal. Crunchy bears of corn, cold breakfast. It's part of this complete breakfast. Donkey Kong cereal, you love the crunch. Also, he doesn't say, you are going to have to take that up with counsel. He says, you're. And of course, in British English, it's you're, you know, you're gonna, you're, so that you is you are. He's not talking too fast. What he's saying is you And so you've got a consonant, you, and a vowel, oh, and that's the form. So you have these crunches in the language. If you're really going to learn how to talk the way that man talks, if you go there, you learn to say it's not you are. That's on the page, but you don't say that unless you're being very explicit. You have to say your. And in British, you just to you it's this different form. And so, yeah, the, the verb to be helps make English a mess. In the same way, you have something like we are. What in British, what so you have to learn that. They are that so they're people too. The people too. So that you have to learn these little things where what happens is that it starts with this B form, like, you know, is, am, are, but then it just kludges on to that pronoun before it messes the pronoun up. And really, there's nothing left of the separate form of B, but just some vowel sound. You, are, ya, that's all. So it's kind of like the Cheshire cat leaves behind his smile. Same thing. There is magic in to be. That's in languages in general, I should say. But every other language, all sorts of interesting things are happening with this business of I am your father, Luke, or something like that. It's always an interesting place to look. There may be nothing. Some languages don't have a word for that, but even if they don't, they kind of really do, and you have to know when. Russian is an example. Again, it's called the copula. I, I swear it really is called that, bringing <clears throat> things together. And the copula is always interesting. I recommend the copula. Play it again, Mike. You're going to have to take that up with the council. So technically, he's saying going to. Even that's a little bit of magic. Going to. You're going to. Where's he going? He's not referring to Fagin having to take his feet and walk somewhere. It's a way of marking the future. Sort of. I'll get to that in a bit. But English has only had that I'm going to mail a letter. I'm going to get eczema when allergy season happens or something like that. That only happens in the 1600s in any real way. Before that, if you're going, it's that you're going to go somewhere and you're not going to be where you were before. But because if you're going to do something, where are you going? I'm going to mail a letter. That implies that you're going to do it in the future. 
So after a while, going to starts to mean the future, even if it doesn't involve feet. Like, you're not going to take your body over somewhere to purchase some eczema. If you say, I'm going to get eczema, that means it's going to happen in the future. But that means that you've developed going to as a piece of grammar. Going to becomes an equivalent, in a sense, of just will. I will get eczema when allergy season comes. I'm going to get eczema when allergy season comes. That's not something anybody talks about in the old documents, but I just happen to be thinking about it. And so that's called grammaticalization. Unlike eczema, grammaticalization is not a chronic condition. It's how you get these grammatical constructions in a language. It starts out as literal, real word things, things you can hold in your arms like a cat, things you can really think about like jumping. But then you get the bits of grammar, like the wills and the oughts and the coulds. And next thing you know, going to stops even being said that way because it no longer means going. You're not trying to get that across. And that's where you get gonna, as in what our guy says in the Crown episode. And gonna is a bit of grammar. We think of gonna as what happens when you say going to too fast and it's kind of slangy or something like that. But no, it's a new piece of grammar. It's not going to. Notice that you would never say, I'm gonna the store. You say, I'm going to the store. Somebody's going to say, you're going to what? The store. I'm going to the store is not, if you say it quickly, I'm going to the store. Gonna is its own thing. And it developed from this going to usage that started crystallizing in the 1600s. And so then that gives you a sense of black English. And so I'm going to go to the store is I shall hie myself to the store. But I'm going to go to the store has it that just uh is the future marker. A Martian would think of it that way. And that uh starts out as going to. And you know, it's not just English where this sort of thing happens with going. This is normal human cognition. A language I never bring up actually has an example of this. There's a language spoken in Russia. It's called (laughs) Russian. And you can have a word that means going. And so, for example, you can say, on pridyot for gosti. And that means, like, he is going to be a guest somewhere. He's going to be a guest with us. And so, on pridyot, and that's he's going. But then, that pridyot ends up becoming something that means obligation. It can be like, yumu pridyot stuknuts kavota. And that means to, <laughs> to smack somebody. So, he has to. That doesn't mean that he's walking up to somebody and taking his hand and going, kaboom. Why is all this violence in me today? I'm sorry, but it means that he has to smack the person in order to stop them from climbing up Buckingham Palace or something like that. And notice this. If you say you're going to have to take that up with counsel, you are actually using the future. That's not really what it means. It doesn't mean at a point that is ahead of this one, you're going to have to take it up with the council. Because why would you specify that? Of course, if he's not doing it now, then you're not going to specify that he's going to be doing it later. The reason that you say you will, you are going to have to take that up with the council, is because it's one of these many things in English that is a softener that we don't think of that way. You could say you have to take it up with council. A person might say that. The way that you say it in a way that is less likely to antagonize this clearly slightly batshit person is to say you're going to have to take that up with the council. You put it in the future because then it's less in your face. So much of language is that kind of thing. It's the opposite of something like the waiter who comes up and says, "Um, well, uh, what were you thinking you'd have? 
I don't know why it's a telephone operator in 1937, but let's keep that. So, all right, sweetie, what were you thinking you'd have? Well, why is it in the past? Because you're sitting right there. Because if you think about it, she says, what are you thinking you're going to have? It's a little in your face. Back off, Beatrice. Her name is Beatrice for some reason. You say, what were you thinking you'd have? Because it kind of displaces it. That sort of softening is as much of language and communication as concrete things like referring to jumping and cats. If you can't do that, you're not human and you have to just stay in your house. So that is the going to. You're going to have to have to. Okay, have. What is that? Have. It's the funniest thing. It, it seems so ordinary in English. I have a book. There is a book that is in my possession. And so I have that thing. That is not the way all languages work. And the truth is that if you look around the world at things that cluster in places, if you go to East and Southeast Asia, lots of tones, you can almost expect it. If you go to um, Native American languages in North America, lots of, of uvular consonants, you, you can expect that there's going to be that, that sort of thing, especially in the northerly ones. That is, is normal. Little things that cluster in the world, South America, evidential markers. You have to say whether you heard it, you saw it, or it's hearsay. That clusters in the Amazon. Something that clusters in Western Europe is having a word that means to have. The idea that you would say that you have something actively as opposed to putting it in some other way. So, for example, take Beatrice Benaderet, B. Benaderet, the voiceover artist who did a lot of the women in Looney Tunes in the 1940s and into the 50s. This is Little Red Riding Rabbit. This is the Bobby Soxer teenager. And notice how she uses have. This is classic Western European having that would be hard to translate into other languages. I would love to see how they do this in the Estonian Bugs Bunny, but I can't tell because somebody once gave me a VHS of Bugs Bunny and Estonian, and I never managed to play it. And anyway, so listen to B. Benaderet doing the, the Bobby Sox. Five o'clock whistles done a blink. The whistle won't blow, and what do you think? My papa's still in the factory, cause he don't know what time it happens to be. La da 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 What you got in the basket, gorgeous? So, to have. A real language just as often does to have with something like, it is to me, it is of me. And there might be some word that means to have, but it's not used all the time. If you're dealing with a language somewhere else in the world, but Western Europe, often you've got to get past the idea that you say, I have a stomachache, I possess a cat. Notice also, you have to. You're going to have to take that up with counsel. Have to means obligation. It's something that you have to do. Well, you know, that is an indication of the chance element in change. Because in a language, if you've got this have thing, stuff is going to happen to it. And you're going to say, well, I have to something. And to us in English, we think, well, of course, it means that you are obliged to do it. But you know, in other languages, have to comes out meaning something else. It may be that you have this obligation to do something. But also, if you have an obligation to do something, it implies that you're going to do it in the future, just like if you're going to it. And so, for example, in vulgar Latin, not 
Latin spoken by people who pick their nose, but just Latin as was actually spoken, as opposed to the artifice of Cicero or something like that. In vulgar Latin, to have to do something meant that you were going to do it in the future. So if you, you know, you're picking your way through Cicero and you're talking about loving in the future, I will love amabo, and you have an ending. In real Latin, another way of saying it, just like we have more than I will go, we've got, you know, I am going to go and, you know, I shall go. There were other ways of doing the future in real Latin. And one of them was I have to love. And that didn't mean I'm obliged to love this person who I'm in an arranged marriage with or something like that. It meant I will love this person later, if that's what you wanted to say. So, for example, amare is to love. Habeo is I have. So, Amare habeo meant not, I must love my purchased bride. I'm sorry, but not that, but amare habeo meant I am going to love in the future. Say that quickly, and you've got amare habeo, amare, amero, 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 amero is Italian, complete with the high tone that Italian has to be spoken on. Amero is I will love, and the o is all that's left of what was the habeo. And so, I have to love became those future tense markers that you learn if you're dealing with French, Spanish, Italian, or Portuguese. And also, talk about the softening. To know English, obligation. How do you say that somebody needs to do something? You can start with might. You might want to take that up with the council, crazy motherfucker. That's how I would deal with him, and I wouldn't call him that. But you might want to take that up with the council to avoid him, you know, trying to shoot me. Or a little stronger is you ought to take that up with the council. It's something that you really should do, and then the ought, though, leaves room for the person not doing it. Yeah, consider that you've complete with this high voice. You ought to do it. So, that. But then you have to do it. You have to. You're going to have to take that up with the council. Gonna distances it yet again, but you have to take it up with the council, and that's it. You must take it up with the council, or a piano will fall on you. You must. So, it's kind of like, might, ought, have to, must, and then better. You better take it up with the council, or I'm going to smack you. That's what that means. You've got those five levels. No grammar book will teach you that. You better get out of here, or I shall smite thee. That's what it means. Better get out of here. Because it is time for a song. And there is a song called Better Get Out of Here. It is from Where's Charlie, which is written by Frank Lesser, who did Guys and Dolls. This is a farce set to music. Good music. There was no cast album in the United States when this was done because there was a recording strike, but they did it over across the pond and they did do an album. This is called Better Get Out of Here. And it's Victorian women who are wondering whether they should be alone in the quarters of a gentleman. Then the gentleman sing. The gentleman would be Ray Bolger, the scarecrow from Wizard of Oz, if there were an American cast recording. Instead, it's these British people. We don't know who they are over here, so I'm not going to say who they are, frankly, because I don't really know them either. But it's a very catchy song. This is Better Get Out of Here Before They Do. He wouldn't dream of trying to kiss me. It's not the sort of thing he had planned. He wouldn't dream of trying to kiss me or even gently holding my hand. He wouldn't dream of trying to kiss us after all they're civilized too But Amy, just to be on the safe side You better get out of here before they do Jack, suppose they stay Wouldn't it be daring and wouldn't it be fun By the way, you know, you better get Slate 
Plus. That's at slate.com slash lexicon plus. And the reason that you get Slate Plus is because it makes life better for you. Imagine listening to this episode where, well, you would have to have it stop for these irrelevant show tunes. Yes, but it wouldn't stop for the ads. No ads for beds and things like that. You just get to listen to it and you get a tag at the end. It's like watching a 70s sitcom where they you know, talk about what they've been through for the past 22 minutes before the ending credits. You get a little bit more. So, for example, with this episode, have you ever noticed that the Ile de France isn't an island? Ah, the Ile de France. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, where's the island? It's not, not an island. There's a reason why it's called that, and it's an interesting one. And you want to know why she was named Joan of Arc? When you went to France, if you did, did you visit any little town called Arc? Would have been hard because there isn't one. So what's Joan of Arc? To find out about these things and more, you have to get Slate Plus because that's where I did the tag. You can't find it anywhere else, or at least I don't know how you would. In any case, Slate is these days just a dollar for the first month, and you get extra episodes, extra whole episodes of Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. (laughs) You always want that. So you should get Slate Plus in order to get more product and for a nominal fee to help Slate out during these straightened times. So you're going to have to take that up with the council. Take up with. What is a word? People are always talking about, well, English has the most words. Russians say that too. I have heard Spaniards say it. And I don't know the answer to that question. Part of it is that written languages have big giant dictionaries and they have all these words in them that nobody uses. But which one has the most words? Well, I don't know what a word is. And I have done that in an early episode of Lexicon Valley. And I want to revisit that to an extent. So take up with, well, the word we think is take. What does take mean? And whatever it means, it's really a tiny sliver of the sorts of things you can do with take because we have these little particles. So you're going to take it up with the council. Okay, so take it up means that you have to go consult council about this. You're going to talk about some issue and you use it specifically about things that are a little bit challenging that you'd rather not talk about. It's usually something official or it's some conflict that you have. And so you're going to take it up. Take up is a separate word if you think about it from take. Really, if you're going to look at words in a language, because if you just you know shook the dice and threw them again, then there'd be some separate word other than take up. And you can probably think of some. Consult, for example. You're going to have to consult about that with the council. But we can also say take up. Is that the same word as take? Is that a usage of take when take is so generic? And so, for example, take up. What does take up mean? You can take it up with the council. But you can also take up a hobby. Is that the same word as taking something up with the council? Somebody takes up space. Is that the same word as taking up a hobby? Obviously not. And then if you're taking up space, is that the same word as taking up with the council? See, they're completely different. These are three different concepts that are labeled with the same bits of material. But the semantic relationship between taking it up with the council, taking up a hobby, taking up space, and taking up your marbles the literal meaning of it. All of those are completely different things. How many words does English have? Well, it can't be about take and that long entry in the dictionary, because frankly, I've just given you four words. It just depends on what you call a word. And then notice, take that up. He doesn't say take that 
up. He says, take that up. That uh, is a glottal stop. And it's one of those things. In English, we don't think of that as a real sound. We think it's cute when people in Britain do it. And it's interesting. We don't like to admit that we do it. So, for example, cotton, a cotton ball. It's a cotton ball. Cotton ball. I have had the most interesting conversations with people where they say, no, I say cotton. No, you don't. (laughs) Or you might. But it's cotton. We do the glottal stop. I have had people write to me and I can put myself in their heads and say, lately people are saying cotton instead of cotton. It's not lately, because actually in an earlier episode, I played people in an unusually crystal clear recording from the early 30s. They're already saying certain cotton people have been saying it long before that. The glottal stop doesn't feel like a real sound to us because we don't write it. But to see how real it is, all you have to do is go to a language where the difference between, for example, that up and that up would be a complete difference in meaning. You know, an example of that There's a lot of that talk about what clusters in languages, a lot of that in Polynesia. And so the Hawaiian language is one of the Polynesian languages. The way you say something is completed is pau. But if you say pau, that's not just a funny way of saying pau. Pau means a smudge. And then if you make the vowels longer, it changes the meanings too, for the record. So pau, as opposed to pau, pau is a smudge. Pau is moist. And then if you say pa'u, that's a kind of skirt. So pa'u, 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 and pa'u are four different words. It's finished. It's a smudge of stuff. It's something that's kind of icky and moist. It's skirt. All of that is not only the length of the vowels, but also the glottal stop. There's a bilabial stop in a language, b. There is an alveolar stop in a language, t. There's a velar, soft palate stop in a language, k. You can go further back, and there's a glottal stop, Uh, They all kind of interact. We just don't write the glottal stop. And so we don't understand our cotton. Or that, you have to take that up with counsel. It's interesting about that. That, if you say that enough, you're, you're pointing to something that is not this, but that. After a while, that becomes the. That's where the comes from. In earlier English, and especially before English was English, there were no definite articles. You can leave that kind of thing to context. Most languages in the world do not have a word for the and a word for a. You don't need to have a particular word for that. You can do that with context. You can do that with word order. You can do that in ways that I don't want to bother you with here. But you do not have to have two weird little words like the and a. And it's interesting. That is originally something that happens when English has three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. And so that becomes the. And for a while, we had definite articles in those three flavors. You had the masculine, feminine, and neuter. The neuter one won out, and that's where we get the the from. But the masculine and the feminine, to us, seem very strange. They were se and sea. Like, what the hell is that? Se is a boy, sea is a girl, and then that is a neuter. <laughs> and so that's the way it went. Well, we have the from the that. But what, what happened to say and say? And you know, something did happen to them. Say just went down the toilet. But say, that's where we get she. And so it used to be that he and she were different in Old English. He was he. Hey is how you said it. She was hea. She was not she or she or something like that. It was hea. Hey and hea. In some dialects, hea 
became just hey. And so you didn't have any difference between he and she. A language doesn't mind that, but still, it was an odd state for English. Hey, hea. So for example, her, the object form, him, her, we still have a remnant of something beginning with H in the feminine. Hey, hea. Well, what happened is that in these hey, hey dialects, you needed something. You felt like you wanted something to indicate the feminine because that's the way English used to be. Other dialects had it. It kind of bothered people. And so, sea, that feminine definite article, became she, as in that girly thing there. I don't know what people were thinking, but that's what she comes from. And, you know, even on a previous show, I've talked about a different derivation of she that is extremely involved, and it goes that hea started being pronounced hea and then she and she. I frankly have decided that that's a little odd and a little forced. I, I think that she came from sea. That's much easier. But it's not like hea just became hey everywhere. In some places, hea went in a different direction, just like have to can go in two different directions. And so, hey, hea, he, in Manchester, if you really listen hard, especially to people who are kind of out there and haven't happened to have much education, then hea became ooh. And so there's he, and then ooh is she. So the situation before was very different from the situation now. And it gets me to, to thinking, for no reason at all, <laughs> you know what's coming. Imagine if somebody asks you, imagine dealing with this challenge. You have to write a song about the Louisiana Purchase. Imagine somebody says, well, this show is called Louisiana Purchase and we need a title song. Sit down, Irving Berlin, write a song about the Louisiana Purchase. Now I'm sitting here thinking, what would I do as somebody who would never be asked to do that? And you're thinking, Louisiana Purchase, and whatever you come up with is going to be the worst song in the world. Somehow Irving Berlin came up with one of the catchiest songs ever written about the Louisiana Purchase. My Dahlia, I played this in the car. She asked me to play it six times in a row. I have watched supremely unmusical people driven wild with pleasure by this song and angry at me that they're still humming it to themselves the next day, including people who can't even hum. This is one of the catchiest songs ever written. This is just a little bit of it for no reason other than that I listened to it in the car the other day and thoroughly enjoyed it. Louisiana Purchase I'll tell you what it means It means I'd like to sell you New Orleans Come on, come on And you all can go to town Way down in New Orleans Louisiana salesman With nothing in his jeans That's why I'd like to sell you New Orleans Come on, come on And do all the things there are to do In New Orleans Where does that heat come from? That rhythmic beat come from? And that red meat come from? New Orleans Louisiana Purchase told you what it means so won't you let me sell you new orleans come on come on and you all can go to town way down in new orleans louisiana purchase i'll tell you what it means it means i'd like to sell you new orleans come on so finally council Council's kind of boring. It's actually all the stuff before council. But council is from Latin conchilium. 
Konkilium. And the Kili starts out on the steps of Ukraine as Kele. And Kele meant to shout. And so a council is a shouting together, a konkele. I don't know if they said it that way, but can't you just tell, you know, you're on the steps of Ukraine. And so konkele, it's a shouting together. And that kele also became not just the sl in council, but its claim, its clamor, its clear, its declare, its nomenclature, its all of these clarion call things. But in council, just sl. It got locked in there. It's like you catch a praying mantis and you put it in a little fish tank and you keep it there and you feed it worms and it's stuck in there. So kele is stuck as just tzul. And that praying mantis lives for two months and you think that you're feeding it the worms, but then gradually the praying mantis loses energy and the worms eat the mantis. That actually happened to me last summer. This, if we're going to have some going out music, is from a show of 1939 called Very Warm for May. It was an utter disaster, but as with many shows like that, it had great music. And the original music has been recorded to an extent. Nobody cares about this but me, but I have always enjoyed it. This is just a random boogie-woogie number that they did. And the orchestration is fantastic. It's called Harlem Boogie Woogie, and a bunch of people just came out and danced in front of the curtain while they changed the set. That's the way shows were at this time. Nobody needs to see a production of Very Warm for today, but this is a wonderful four minutes of music. It's boogie-woogie with a big giant orchestra orchestrated by the same man who created the sound of shows like Oklahoma, South Pacific, and The King and I, Robert Russell Bennett. Robert Russell Bennett could boogie. Listen to this. In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. And you know, folks, I can't help saying that my little book, Nine Nasty Words, has hit the New York Times bestseller list. And so, given that it did that, of course, now you really have to go buy it. Nine Nasty Words, it's a tonic after a long year, as they say, or at least that's what I've been saying. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. Mm-hmm.